I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, maybe disagree a lot, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Anna Strong Safford, poet, critic, editor, teacher, who teaches creative writing and modern and contemporary U.S. poetry and poetics, whose poems have appeared variously in Supplement, Cleaver, Peregrine, and elsewhere, who is a curricular specialist and faculty member in the School of Liberal and Professional Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and is my close colleague here at the Kelly Writers House and in the teaching of poetry to tens of thousands of people worldwide through our ModPo course. And who with me is currently editing a book of 50 short essays by 50 poets, each about one poem to be published by the University of Pennsylvania Press and possibly to be titled, The Difference is Spreading. Mm. And by Ahmad Almala, a poet whose amazing first book of poems, Bitter English, has been published by the University of Chicago Press, who is also a specialist in Arabic poetry and has written a book about Arabic love poetry called Pure and Sensual, who is a member of the faculty here at Penn and in the Near East Languages and Civilizations Department and also teaches in the Creative Writing Program and whose new collection of poems in progress, her book of recipes, is that still the title? Um, What is it? Uh, uh, you don't know. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Second but Exile. <laughs> what used to be called her book of recipes and might now be Second Exile is about, in part, I hope it's still about this, the difficult intergenerational cross-cultural psychodynamics of parents and children. And by Stephen Metcalf, critic at large at Slate, who's beautifully written, beautifully, beautifully written essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, the New York Observer, New York Magazine, and the New Yorker. Steve, there's a lot of New York in there. <laughs> there's a lot of New York in there. <laughs> and elsewhere, who resides in the beautiful, beautiful Hudson Valley of New York State. He's a real New York guy who is finishing a book about the 1980s, whose Wikipedia page entry picture is a photograph of him presenting in our arts cafe here at the Kelly Writers House, where indeed he has hosted discussions with great prose writers at least once per year, more typically twice for some years now, and who since 2007, I believe, has been the host of the much, much admired weekly Slate podcast, The Culture Gab Fest. Steve, it's good to see you. Al, it's great to see you. I'm so glad you're back here. Delighted to be back. I think this might be your first first day in this studio, right? Last time we were upstairs. Probably. Yeah, first day. Yeah, fantastic. Ahmad. Al. Hello. It's always great to see you, Al. You know, t- this is this is my favorite place on earth. Oh my God, you're making and me. Fa- I'm facing you right now. Yeah, that's, oh, that's you're all the what best. I need. <laughs> We're very excited. Uh, let the record show that uh, this evening, th- this ne- on the day of this recording, this evening, uh, Ahmad will be reading from Bitter English and uh, new poems. 
Uh, and uh, by the time people are hearing this podcast, they will be able to go to his Pen Sound page and watch the recording and listening. And Anna, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. Not better than that? Okay. <laughs> well, today we four have gathered here to talk about one of the most well-known poems in English of the 20th century, Robert Frost's Mending Wall, first collected into a book in 1914 in the legendary volume North of Boston. Frost read this poem many, many times at readings and in studios across the decades. The poem is in our ears, at least in mine, mostly from performances by the older, venerable poet reprising a famous piece. For our recording today, however, we go back to the very early years of poetry recording, Our Mending Wall, which comes from Pensound's Frost page as curated by Chris Mostaza, was the second earliest known recording of the poem made on October 24, 1934. It was originally made on an aluminum platter as a speech lab recording at Columbia, Columbia University. Uh, along with other speech lab recordings, it was subsequently dubbed to a reel-to-reel -reel tape by the Library of Congress in 1978 to preserve it. And the sounds we'll hear happen to come from that reel. So here now is Robert Frost performing Mending Wall in 1934. Mending Wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. That sends the frozen groundswell under it. And spills the upper boulders in the sun. And makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I have come after them and made repair where they have left not one stone on a stone, but they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made. But at spring mending time, we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each. And some are loads, and some so nearly balls, we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes a little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say else then. But it's not else exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage arm. He moves in darkness, as it seems to me, not of woods only in the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying. And he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. 
Steve, there are at least three figures here. One is the speaker who's on one side of the wall. The other is the neighbor uh, whom the speaker meets once a year at least. And the third, we'll just stipulate, is the person who created the poem who either is the speaker or is more likely some other figure we'll call Robert Frost. So those are three. How do the th- Get us started on how those three relate to each other. And what does a reader do with those three figures? That's a great question. Um, I think the relationship between Frost and the speaker is a is a perfect place to start a discussion like this because Frost, who we think of as a quintessential New Englander, was born in California, was born in San Francisco. To very chaotic. Am I lecturing already? I feel so. <laughs> so I taught a class on Robert Frost recently, and I think of Frost as a poet who's greeted with skepticism. Um, it's helpful to be reminded that Frost invented this caricature of himself. I mean, Robert Frost himself, forget the discrepancy between the human being known as Robert Frost and the speaker in the poems. Robert Frost himself was a very conscious, belabored creation. Right. So So, this is the gist of my question, because the the guy on the other side who says good fences make good neighbors and doesn't think about what his father's saying means is really, really New England. And then the guy, the speaker, is a kind of somewhat skeptical, complicated intellectual New Englander, but really, really New Englander. And then the guy Frost, who creates all this, is something of a construction of a New Englander, but they all are constructions. So I guess what I'm looking for is some starter on how we understand the relationship between Frost, the one who made the poem and who signed it, and the speaker. How uncomfortable are those two with each other? Uncomfortable might not be exactly the word that I would use. I mean, he, but they're not the same. I would not say they're the same. No, and right. and he wrote an. So this is his second book of poetry. It's the first real poem I think in his in his second book of poetry. The first one being kind of an introductory jingle, and then mending wall is is you come to. I yeah, think you come to exactly yeah, the pasture or whatever. Um, and uh, but if you go back and you read his first book of poetry, which is nothing precocious about Frost. That's published when he's 38. He's a fully formed grown-up who's had several careers uh, at that point. Um, and you hear a very Victorian voice in uh, A Boy's Will. And it's really a, a book of poetry about learning how to become an American poet, a distinctively American and distinctively modern poet. Ah, interesting. And, um, and having performed that work, he can now present himself or present this persona mm. or you know, some combination of the two in, in Mending Wall. Ahmad, take it from there, uh, the relationship between Frost the poet, who, as Steve says, is sort of really getting into the mode of the constructed self that he worked out in A Boy's Will and the speaker who is different, I think. I think Frost is trying to be the guy from New England who's speaking to his uh, neighbor, but at the same time, he wants to be the outsider. And uh, he plays those roles very well in, in the poem. Even even for me, uh, in the in the construction of of uh, the poem itself, I mean the the first line, something there is that something there is that doesn't love a wall. Uh, it it almost seems to me like a, a construction of of objects of like rocks. Like he begins that construction of of the wall. And then he begins deconstructing that that wall, or it falls. He doesn't know why he reflects on the gaps. 
And then he gets to this kind of meeting with the neighbor, each on one side of the wall. And that's sort of like what sets the conversation. That, 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 that wall becomes the conversation be- between them. And if we were to be pro-wall, like happy that the wall exists, it would be because it gives us an excuse to have a conversation, ritualistic conversation once a year, right? So nothing wrong with a wall that provides us an occasion for uh, exploring subjectivities. I guess, but like I'd hope that you'd have other things to talk to your neighbors about besides, okay, that rock's on your side and this rock's on my side, so you fix your rock but and what I'll if fix they my don't? rock. And we'll... I mean, what if they don't? We live in a city, so doesn't you don't need walls f- to have a conversation with people because you're all around them. But there's, there's a lack of social density here. I mean, I see this, Steve, as an expression of a kind of social conservatism, a smart social conservatism that suggests that one reason we need boundaries is to know where I end and where another person begins so we can meet there and explore what is not me and what is me. Does that make any sense to you? It does. I mean, it's interesting that in the poem, you know, the speaker is mischievous in a way that that, that can't provoke the neighbor to any mischief in response, right? It's the stolidity and kind of relative... Right. He simply repeats what he knows. Yeah, he repeats the the bromide passed along to him by his own father, which becomes for the speaker of the poem quite sinister, right? Provocatively sinister to him in a way. But um, but the wall is the wall is needless. I mean, one of the things that makes him feel the wall is necessary to bring these two people together. But it's not necessary for A- absent, agriculture, right? Absent the wall, they will not confront one another socially. I think you feel quite strongly in the. Let's uh, go back to Anna because so I guess the point is. That the wall is not a utility, but it is needed for there to be social commerce. In the economy of this poem, I'm, I'm willing to stipulate that. Okay. But you'd rather... Come on, I'm trying to draw it out I of know you, you are. <laughs> you'd ra- you're saying that you'd rather there not need to be a wall for social commerce to take place. Right. Be better if they the... met at the cafe and had a nice conversation. Or, you know... This this speaker could be could be a nice neighbor. A, a good neighbor isn't just a good fence. A good neighbor is someone who invites you over for coffee or whatever. Um, but I this think, is the equivalent of that, isn't it? The conversation isn't very edifying, but they do have it. Sure. I mean, r- rituals are rituals are an important thing, um, and I think part of the ritual of this poem is not only the the story, right? The action of walking along the fence and each mending their own side. It's the fact that this is written in, you know, blank verse, right? That's another ritual that's been reproduced. Um, The poem itself is this, like, dense block of Wordsworthy and blank verse. It's blank but not free because it's very iambic. Yeah. So it's that's another sort of ritual that people didn't question for a long time, right? Like, oh, that's just what poems are, like— we're just hanging mm. out in unrhymed iambic pentameter because that's that's what poems do. Ahmad and Steve, I want to turn to you on this question. So what Anna is saying, and a lot of people do say it, she's bespeaking a contemporary view of this poem, which is that it itself is a kind of wall. Well, I mean, uh, there's 
no indication in the poem that Frost is against uh, uh, the construct, really. I, I think he's all for it. Ironically, the speaker might not be all for it, but the but f- you're saying Frost. It's Frost okay, is yeah. definitely all okay. all for it. Yeah, you know, Frost kept talking about the imagination of the ear and kind of fitting sort of uh, that imagination within uh, the conventional uh, meters of English poetry. Uh, there's there's no doubt about it. He also talked about, okay, if you write without meter, then it's like playing uh, tennis without a net or Which something. Which is not a good thing. Which is not a good thing. Uh, Although I have really loved playing tennis without a net. <laughs> <laughs> you really do want a net. I mean, it's, he's got us there. You really do want a net when you're playing I guess. Tennis. But for me... Uh, the imagination of the ear doesn't really have to be within the iambic uh, pentameter or within the iambic foot that he tries to kind of use all, all the time. It uh, is iambic pentameter. It, it is an iambic pentameter here. Yeah. Set the wall yeah. between us once again. We keep the wall between us yeah. as we go to eat. So it's really iambic pentameter. Yeah. 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 Uh, Steve, take it from there. I'm not a prosodist by any stretch of the imagination, but my sense is that Frost, he goes in and out of iambic pentameter uh, uh, very much as a musical cue. He'll go from a very conversational register where you have a kind of crabbed or slightly unrhythmic speech, even though it may be in a 10-syllable line, but then he'll go into a very poetic, very rhythmic, and very lulling iambic pentameter to tell you that a moment that you're supposed to pay attention to has arrived. And in this poem, I really hear it. And on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. Setting the wall coincides, as you say beautifully, with this very self-conscious poetic construction. So I think it's 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 old, very old-fashioned to us now. It was of a piece with modernism in its own peculiar way back in 1914. Right. If, yeah. if yeah. Anna, Ahmad, if... If Steve is right, and I think he is, that this is a hint, especially the first reception is a hint that there's a certain meta-poetic quality here. In other words, Frost is, Frost, I don't know about the speaker, but Frost is aware that he is creating a relationship between his prosody and the idea of the wall. That is a modern idea. I don't think of this poem as modernism, but that idea is quite modern. Responses to that? Well, it would make sense. Um, And... Steve, I think your reading is absolutely right. Like something there is that doesn't love a wall is not iambic. Yeah. yeah. And and interesting that the first, the opening salvo opening line is it, would not. It's impossible know. to do yeah. it. I, although yeah, I, I can do it. You can. I can. Should I do it? <laughs> Using the voice of Bella Lugosi <laughs> as something that is, that does and love a wall. <laughs> Obviously, it's not iambic, but Bella Lugosi could make it iambic. Sorry. Bella Anna. Lugosi could make anything iambic. That's true. <laughs> Bella Lugosi only spoke in iams. Right. Listen to the children of the night. That's, an, <laughs> that's actually anapestic. But there anyway. <laughs> um, I guess all I was going to say is, is uh, if the wall were a perfect wall, right, um, maybe he, it would be completely imperfect iams for the whole poem. But the wall is kind of broken, the, the whole purpose of this walk is to fix the wall. Um, and isn't it true that uh, I could be wrong about who said this, but I think it's Wordsworth who said um, that he wrote in iambic pentameter to mimic the patterns of speech. I guess the idea then would be that the more conversational pieces would perhaps be in the iambic parts and parts of the parts that talk about the 
broke, you know, the broken wall, the falling down wall, or maybe where he breaks the pattern a little bit. But I think overwhelmingly you get the sense that this is I am, and and you f- you feel the comfort in which the it's almost like you know when you're putting in like a combination lock and you feel that really satisfying little click like when you get it right when you read and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the, the wall between us once again we keep the wall between us as we, like oh, it, you yeah, fall right into it it's so comfortable yeah, yeah. right it's so comfortable to say um so that's a part where that wall is nice and nice and tight but but again i i guess that's where where i would kind of disagree probably with, with Robert Frost because I think the most interesting line is the first line. Oh, yeah, totally. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. I mean, it's just... It's, it's very mysterious it's, because, it's, of course, yeah. that something is the big is the big yeah. question mark of this piece, right? Especially when you use your vampire voice. It's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, yes. It's, it's elves, haha, not elves. It's something. It's a mystery. It's nature. I mean, the joke answer when you're teaching this poem is what is something it's frost it's frost that creates the upheaval yeah. of the stones mm-hmm. and that's a great pun on the person who created this whole situation steve i want to switch to the question of the neighbor mm-hmm. right so we're to think at least superficially oh this guy he doesn't think about anything he moves in darkness he's really behind the times what kind of free-thinking philosophical farmer is he well he's not right so there's a little bit of gentrification, you know, you know, there's a little bit of the speaker, fro- the Frostian speaker kind of just showing up and saying, no, oh, you got to fix this wall. I got to deal with this guy. But I guess it's a way of finding out, you know, what the benighted people are about. Can we do something with that as a, oh, sure. a cultural Oh, critique. There, there, well, there are class issues and gender issues, and we can separate them. I mean, as a class issue, Frost was always conscious that he was not a farmer, even though he was a farmer. I mean, he was sort of half a farmer and half not a farmer. He was both of and not really in, but not really of the New England landscape, uh, and um, was. And many of his poems about farming are about being lazy, uh, about uh, indulging in leisure, and trying to understand whether poetry is a fact of, of human labor, work, and necessity, or a frivolity, a leisure, you know, super, superfluity, and trying to reconcile those two things with one another, which brings up the issue of gender. You know, his wife was slightly older than he was and a very gifted poet, and I think was valedictorian of her high school class, and he was salutatorian or something, and then submitted herself to 40 years or 60 years or whatever, whatever it was of being creatively throttled by her husband in a way, and there is something about um, Frost working out the idea of what an American poet will look like, a masculine American poet will look like. And for that to work in the context of the American landscape, poetry has to be a, a, a form of work. There is a way in which maybe he envies the neighbor for being a creature purely of uh, masculine labor in mm. a way, yeah. and laconic self-expression. If so, Anna, there's a lot of anxiety here on the part of the speaker because it's the because the real masculine is the character is the guy on the other side he's a savage yeah right which is a cruel word but also a word that's infused with masculinity in a way that the much too intellectual speaker isn't so there's some anxiety in this on the part of the speaker i have and you have witnessed my teaching this poem 
Anna, maybe too many times, <laughs> as Just a really a interesting analog for subject-object, subject, the speaker focalizer on one side, and object being the person on the other side you see, but also writer-reader. Right. I mean, I really think that it's kind of almost an allegory for modern reading. A speaker is to neighbor mm -hmm. as subject is to object. Mm -hmm. The wall, happily for our conserv cultural conservatives, separates subject from object. The worst thing you can have happen if you're a cultural conservative or literary conservative is to have the wall. It's to play tennis without a net with subjectivities. You don't want the other, the subjectivity of one to invade the other. So you want to the wall helps us define our relationship, and you need a wall to do it, right? Mm. So it becomes a kind of, I don't know whether Frost meant this, but it becomes a kind of analog for the whole big question of modern subjectivity. There's that. Mm. And that's where the whole modern ethos of wall building comes in because it becomes a geopolitical thing. This is a New England wall that doesn't serve a purpose. It's not keeping the East Germans out. It's not keeping the Palestinians out. It, but it is a wall in the 20th century, so we can't help but talk about that. I think so much of the poetry of the 20th century that's also occupying the same moment, moment of like the early teens and 20s, poetry that's sort of flirting with, well, can we think about expression in a different way? Can we... Can we make it new, to use Ezra Pound's famous phrase? Can we not think about subject-object relations like in the same way that so many people have thought about it before? Um, I think what some of those poets are doing is considering the uh, formal qualities of the, of the poems that they're writing, that they should have an explicit non-formal in the sense of using a form like I make pentamin or blank verse or you know, ballads or whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that the form of the poem should be commensurate with its subject material in a new and different and interesting way. And I think this poem is rebuilding or staking a case or making a claim for, well, there needs to be something. Mm -hmm. It can't just right. be this open, free, you know, Williams' weird little poems about wheelbarrows, right? Like it can't it, – there it has to be something there. There has to be something to establish me as speaking subject and this as speaking object. Like I'm creating a poetic self. I'm, I'm speaking from a particular uh, point of view um, and I'm establishing that in my poem and I'm using the trappings of literary history as a vehicle to then mm. kind of – get that across to you and say something about this important subject. I'm excited because this is really what I was hoping we would talk about. This is big stuff, Steve and then Ahmad. Well, I, and the interesting thing about that, I think, is that the I and you are not for Frost stable pre-given stable categories. They become stabilized in the course of the poem. He famously said, poem, at best, is a momentary stay against confusion. He was a chaotic human being. You read his biography, it's almost terrifying how, I mean, I honestly think uh, clinically he would be described as bipolar. I mean, I think mental chaos and a sense of social chaos were both really uh, quite powerful in his his mind and temperament. And fearful. Very fearful. And and if you don't find arbitrary limits and boundaries, and uh, if you don't impose rhythm on speech, if you don't erect some boundary or establish some boundary between I and you, the two do chaotically blend into one another. I, I don't know. I, I feel the... Uh... 
in line with the with the creation of of the United States as as a as a as a colony frost kind of acts in in line with the with that min- mentality uh i mean the the wall to the uh geography of that place is very very foreign it's something that uh was never there uh the creation of 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 these uh, uh these walls and these farms and the bringing of the sheep has just changed the entire uh landscape of uh this this region uh so despite the fact that frost kind of try to act like as though he's the outsider he's kind of like shaking up the the uh idea of the wall uh in at least the neighbor's he- he- head he actually speaks for the idea of the wall and he sp- speaks really uh for himself for himself as as A, pl- a person who actually occupies this and needs this wall just ha- as he constructs it also in his poem i think the more the more difficult task is to construct the poem out of no f- form that's that's really daunting that's that's to 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 use no structures no walls no something and to construct something that's 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 real innovation. And I think he does it in his first line, interestingly yeah, enough. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. And so, which is the landscape rejecting the wall, right? I mean, it's yeah, the native the landscape. The landscape itself is rejecting itself, the wall. Yeah. You it. said yeah. so many really great things. Um, the last thing you said is the one I want to pick up and ask Anna and Steve to respond to. So the, it's one thing for us to critique this early 20th century possibly not conscious replication of boundaries that are sel- themselves not natural that are imposed and to create a form that is commensurate with boundariness which he's done so brilliantly it's another thing to it's one thing to criticize that it's another to imagine the opposite which is a, a poem that is so non-wallish that it doesn't reproduce any of those problems What do you think? I, I'm not asking you to create such a poem or even to identify such a poem, but I am, I am asking you to <laughs> think about. I am asking you to think about what that means for a poetry that would stand against this imposition on the on the, the land, which which Ahmad is correctly saying is an is a United States, a U.S. or American imposition. So what? It's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. No, Ahmad, what you said is so remarkable. Um, so I'm thinking about the ways in which. Uh, walls themselves are, you know, you look at like an old wall like this, like in New England or an old fence and you go, oh man, that's been there forever. How cool is that? Like, look at this old wall, like look at the old Roman aqueducts, like all in the old Roman roads everywhere in Europe. And you see this stuff and you're like, oh, this is so cool. It's so old. It's been there for so long. But there, it's not, right? It's a fiction. You know, these these things are not native to the landscape. Um The, the one little piece of, of research that I did before this poem talk, I can confess, um, I started thinking about the enclosure acts in England, um, the, the, actual, um, hist- like, the actual legal precedent that created private property rights in England that, that took land that was common and made it privately held. Um, and the last uh, enclosure act I found was an act in 1914, so there's a nice little 
maybe Frost is thinking about that. He spent some time in England, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he yeah, lived he in England for a little bit. Yeah. So so he would have seen this, right? Like in England, um, there's all these lovely farms that are separated by these walls. And there's like little paths in between so people can walk, you know, around the farm and go to town to go to the pub or wherever they go. Um and, and this poem, to me, just kind of is the poem that tries to make a case for this wall's been here forever. This wall's so important. We have to preserve the wall. We have to preserve the separation. We have to preserve private property. Private property is important. But, like, private property is theft. And the this land probably was, or in fact, we know, was held commonly by a whole bunch of people for a whole long time before Robert Frost ever, like, landed on top of it. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each. And some are loads, and some so nearly bald we have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them, Oh, just another kind of outdoor game, one on a side, it comes to little more. There where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Well, let's, I mean, I've been assuming, I've been using the phrase cultural conservatism. I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, uh, I wrote a book about the 1950s in which I was very interested in reading cultural conservatives that would have been cold warriors who were against a whole lot of things I was interested in, including modernism. And I had to read them res with respect. You, I mean, you have, to, you have to read someone you don't agree with with as much respect as possible. I've always read Frost with respect. Uh, I do believe it's a, a quite a brilliant, effective conservative argument about the need for boundaries. Um, that's funny. I just don't. So I, I want you to, if that's not the reading, give us. I just, I, I don't think that it's possible to say that whoever wrote this poem is obviously on the side of erected boundaries. I really don't. I think that upswell of the frozen earth is as much a part of the energy of the poem and the creative you know, urge behind the poem as is any act of speech or, you know, uh, or a self-definition. So why do we read it otherwise? It's not just out of interpretive mistake. Well, I'll tell you. I'll, so it's interesting that the wall is non-functional in some respect. It doesn't keep livestock from wandering off. But it is functional in another sense, which you alluded to, is that it's a property boundary. And what happens when the property boundary between what I own and what you, neighbor farmer, own, owns erodes? And you can look at Frost's career as he's so self-conscious of wanting to create a persona that he could bring to marketplace. He did not want to be a quote-unquote poet for the few. And the sense of turning his own person into a piece of intellectual property that he owned the rights to, you know, that... and and retained the rights to, and that was lucrative, was so central to his life project in a way. Um, and yet there's this funny thing that he, so there's that sense of containment. I own it. I read it. I said it. I created it. This You have to pay me to come and speak the at your university. I mean, that was a huge part of his revenues. He was the Malcolm Gladwell of his time. You <laughs> want me to show up at Amherst 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it was poet dollars, not it's Malcolm Gladwell dollars. It's in that sense, too, then. It is, it is a kind of, it's a piece, an early piece about what he owns. I'd rather, Frost. but I'd rather he said it for himself, which is of a piece with Al Phil Reese non-fascist pedagogy as it comes. Or my so saying, both, or my saying. It's both this thing, uh, it's both. This an, poem is about writer-reader as well, or, or, well, or reader-listener, you know. Well, there's the restrictive self-containing gesture that's totally selfish, right? Like totally on a property, intellectual property basis, completely selfish and, and, and retentive. And then there's this other gesture that's incredibly open and has to do with, this is sort of your property as the reader. And I want whatever happens, I want you to half create it as the reader as well. And I think both things are going on dialectically in the poem. Ahmad, he says, I'd rather, Steve quoted it, I'd rather he said it for himself. He's not saying you must say it for yourself, but he's writing the poem, so he does get to, <laughs> he's in charge, but he's really in charge. I'd rather he say it, said it for himself. Well, there's no such thing as the guy on the other side. I mean, it's a poem, <laughs> right? It's a poem. So, so you have a speaker who's inventing possibly even another, a version of himself, you know, People have read it that way. But Possibly, I mean, it's it's a it's a poem, uh, and I, I don't, I you know, I I didn't want to sound like I'm anti-Frost, or uh, we can probably make the statement that I made about Frost, <laughs> because as Steve said, he 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 created this kind of uh, f f Frost presence that was so important to him. And that was really, for him, everything about his existence. Uh, uh, and, and he guarded it uh, in, in insane ways. I mean, reading like his, his biography, uh, there was one, one time, uh, this was at the bread loaf, when uh, someone else was, was uh, reading uh, uh, at the bread loaf and the people were really, really kind of enamored with that reader. And he started a fire somewhere. Yeah, he lit uh, some papers on fires in yeah, the back of the yeah. room. I think so, it was A.R. Ammons, and yeah. he just uh, he couldn't take it. He, he just he just couldn't really take the fact that someone else is reading good good uh, poetry b b beside him. And he, you know, as Steve said, he he wanted to uh, he wanted this to be the, his the source of his income. He wanted to be called to places and get paid, and 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 he created this. Uh, uh, this frost world it kind it kind of f f fit with this with this uh, idea of this this poem of like you know I want to create something I don't want to guard it I want to set kind of boundaries around it uh, but there's you know there's no way of downplaying like the the even the genius of, of Frost. My, my role here is to kind of criticize it, like find some... You have some, a role? <laughs> <laughs> some gaps in it here, uh, yeah. here and there. Gaps. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. Yeah, that's in because, the poem. Because <laughs> nicely done. Yeah, nicely done. Well, listen, I, I, look, for me, an important poem, and I teach this poem all the time, an important poem is a poem that gets us to say things like, this poem is about the poet's construction of a a successful poetic self or this is a poem that makes us think about how walls of round rocks which are probably originally from the streams or up 
from the ground, which would be glacial, are kind of original. But then, oh, wait a minute, the claim of originality is not true. This is a poem that's about subject and object. This is a poem about cultural conservatism. I mean, this poem is doing a lot of work. And Frost would have been the first one to laugh at us for thinking that it's anything but a poem about a neighbor and an annual ritual. Look, we could talk forever about this. What I'd like you to do is each of you one final thought, something you came here today to say and didn't have a chance to yet. So final thought. Anna, what do you got? Uh, I've been continuing to think about your question um, of is this poem about the relationship between a writer and a reader or maybe a speaker and a reader, given that we have like two layers of separation potentially between us and Frost, given that there's this like layer of the kind of Frostian persona speaker in between. Um, and I guess if if I if this poem is about the relationship between the the writer and the reader, then the only sort of figure that the reader has to kind of hang their hat on is the spe- is the figure of the neighbor, right? Like maybe the neighbor kind of stands in for us. And if that's the case, then the only thing that we, quote unquote, we get to say in this whole poem is good fences make good neighbors because we have to sort of occupy that space. That's the only thing the neighbor actually says in the poem. And it's not even a quote, <laughs> go back to originality, an original thought because the it's his neighbor father's thought, yeah. quoting his father, right? So – if that is the case, then I would so much rather, as a reader, have the poem that is the gapped fence than the mended fence. I want to be able to contribute a little bit more than this trite, good friends make good neighbors phrase. I want the poem that leaves space. I want the poem that does something with the space that's been left, that looks at this broken fence not as something that needs to be fixed, but as opportunity, but as an... an ability to maybe say something different or say something new or break the ritual, right? I have nothing against rituals, but this the mending wall could, instead of being the poem of mending the wall and restoring iambic pentameter blank verse to its rightful place in the Western literary canon, maybe then it's a poem about a fence that's broken down instead. That's all I'll say. No, well said. Very, you know, really... um, (laughs) you know, really a modernist statement, what you just said. <laughs> well, leave it to us at a university to take a supposition, which is the analogy that, that it's an allegory for writer-reader, then complain about <laughs> the situation of the reader. Listen, you invited me here. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, great. Ahmad, final thought. I think uh, uh, Frost kind of, you know, wanted to kind of <laughs> co-opt the American poetry scene to uh, himself in a way, uh, and it's 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 kind of it's funny to, uh, to me to uh, read the the Pulitzer Prize uh, letter that finally they uh, said, okay, we're not gonna give it to uh, uh, Frost again, and we're gonna give it to Gwendolyn Brooks, and it's almost you know it's almost apologetic. Like, it's almost apologizing for giving it to Gwendolyn Brooks and saying that who the one that really deserves it is the true American poet, Robert Frost. But there is this other person that we should probably consider. Frost has won it, you know, four or five times before. 
Uh, and then there's at the end of the 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 letter, there's this kind of like uh, a mention of Williams. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I so I, it's so so it's it's kind of funny how 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 this this poem in a way kind of uh, fits into uh, this uh, persona. The the uh, Frost really uh, worked so hard to construct all his his life and. Uh, And uh, that's that's all what I have to say. Okay. I'm, I'm glad it's getting kind of <laughs> it's it's getting uh, uh, more gaps right now, and and that there's more space to uh, uh, play with the poem more and more. I think I think that's that's great. I don't know. Well said. Thank you, Steve. Well, I think that 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 persona was just it became repulsive as it congealed over time, and the fact that the American poetry establishment was so. happy to elevate frost over and over and over again was just criminal but that was so many decades after this and and when teaching frost i'm just trying so hard to recover the atmosphere of 1905 1910 1914 the fact that frost existed until practically the age of 40 completely outside of the literary establishment i mean to the point where he had published nothing quite literally nothing nobody knew who he was and then he meets Ezra Pound and and it's in fact the modernist the great modernist you know uh, Svengali who brings him almost overnight into literary history because he sees something new in what Frost is doing. And so strange that he has to give it to Edward Thomas and ask him, is this poetry, right? So that, that we think of it as sing-songy and Victorian is, is an artifact of our own time. And then the only other thing I would say is that I think among the truly great takes on Robert Frost is his Pale Fire by Nabokov, which I, the more I read it, the more I reread it, even though Shade is clearly explicitly not Frost. Uh, Shade has a relationship to, a reputational re- relationship to Frost that, that uh, Kinboat makes clear to the reader. Nabokov was obsessed with the idea of a poet who hadn't been estranged from his own native language. You know, here's Nabokov completely in a new landscape, uh, completely exiled from his own mother tongue in which he wanted to be a poet, not a novelist, principally a poet and not a novelist. And that feeling of being orphaned and exiled is so powerful in him. And he has this kind of longing and also sort of bitter hatred for Frost's ability to have his mother tongue and express himself with total economy. And so he's endlessly thinking about uh, uh, what's preposterous about Frost and Frost's reputation through the figure of kin- figures of Kinboat and, and Shade. And I think that's just a wonderfully oblique, weird way into, into what Frost came to mean in the mid-century. Pale fire. If we read Frost through pale fire, we got a new Frost. Well, my final thought is um, to focus on two lines that I think most people who have a passing familiarity, Mending Wall, they might know the first line, but they will know this sentence, and good fences make good neighbors. So number three on the list is, before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out. Everybody knows that part. Now, that part is a critique of walls. That is the part that most people think is the main idea of the poem, which is we need to ask about boundaries. We need to question what's the point. And most walls that have been built, and I don't mean uh, walls separating New England farms. I mean, you know, the walls that keep people out politically and so forth, more directly, more explicitly, um, are to keep – to wa- they're walling out, wallings out as about the wallings in. Um, that is, they're constructed by the in to keep the out from getting in. That's not what this is. 
And so I think it's worth focusing on those lines, which are a sincere conviction of the modernist farmer speaker or the modern farmer speaker saying, well, we need to think about this, even though the ritual is important because it creates a social density that, that is lacking otherwise. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our own narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And it doesn't have to be poetry. It can be anything. So, Anna, can you gather some paradise? Some paradise I'd like to cheer for uh, Nasser Hussein's relatively recent book from 2018 um, called Sky Writings. Um, in which he has uh, sourced all of the available language for his poems from three-letter airport codes. Oh, wow. Um, and has written all the poems using those three-letter, like Sky Writings is W-R-I-T-E-I-N-G-S is the, is the title. Um, and so he's only used airport codes, and each poem he then, on the um, verso page, has a a uh, little map of what would be your flight path if you actually <laughs> flew the path through this poem. So in the interest of No Walls, Sky Writings by Nasser Hussain. There you go. I'm, I'm hearing John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine <laughs> there, there are no walls. It's easy if you try. Yeah. And if you fly. Not. And if you fly, but if you're Nasser Hussain, you're probably going to get Stopped at Stopped checkpoints, at PSA, yeah. and that's the whole point. That is the whole point. Yeah, that's a great book. Steve. So uh, this is not a work of poetry, but it's a work by a poet. Uh, Patricia Lockwood, whose poetry I have no feelings about ha not having read it, but her criticism is getting really like co confident in this way that's just amazing to watch and listen to. Uh, her own critical voice has really come in writing for the London Review of Books. And they uh, tasked her with writing about John Updike and she just brung it. I mean, she brung it. Like, I mean, just every paragraph. It's it's just... It's a, the best book review I've ever read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a young feminist poet confronting the mid-century phallocrat and kind of on his turf, but bringing him over to her turf. And it just, it's just, a, it's just a rhetorical tour de force. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible piece of writing. And I, I really, I can't do it justice describing it. So just go to the London Review of, Bo Review of Books and read it. I mean, we're all trying to understand how to deal with Mailer, Roth, Updike, and, uh, and Bellow, and whether or not we should just let them drift off into obscurity and total, you know, just forget them completely or whether to keep them alive and if so, how. And that she found some incredible way to do it. It's just it's just great a recommendation. Force, yeah. Thank you, Steve. Ahmad. I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend the the time that remains. It's a wonderful movie about the uh, you know the the crazy situation in uh, Palestine. And I think like it's it's uh, it's such a good movie to uh watch uh re related to to this uh, uh conversation and to the conversations of 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 walls and the creation of of boundaries and it's available on netflix it's it's a it's 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 not a documentary it's it's just a wonderful feature film so the time that remains fantastic recommendation yeah. um, my gathering paradise is i'm holding in my hand let the record show uh, Bitter English by Ahmad Almala. It's published by University of Chicago Press. 
And it's great. And you should buy a copy if you're hearing this and you don't already own one. Uh, I specifically want to uh, shout out to a poem called Into His Own, which is about some of the things we were talking about today. It's really about the poet's father, who is Palestinian and who has been sending some weird messages and texts and so forth. And the, the, the poet's son is in the United States and he's just thinking about maybe he can become the kind of poet who can write in a way that the father won't understand. <laughs> so I wondered if you would be will. I was going to read a part of it, but I wonder if you would be willing to read some lines of the end of this poem. Ahmad, sorry, we didn't prepare this. Who are you? Why am I incapable of empathy? It's the past we've shared muddily, as in the garden, as in the weeds you used to rip from earth and ground harshly, as in the slaps you gave me for nothing that a child can understand, and you remain this fog of explanations to me. I don't understand the structure of your disaster, and I know I've gotten much from you, Restless in every state. Do I love the land as much as you do? I keep digging, finding shards of broken glass, a piece of a stocking, things that are fine to the touch and cutting, something of shame, maybe a sham, and maybe I am as unaware of you as you are unaware of me, an image of troubled trouble. Some kid you came close to taming, but never did. And it's called Into His Own. Thank you. Well, that's all the father's sayings we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation. Poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests. Anna Strong Safford, Ahmad Almala, Steve Metcalf, and to Poem Talks director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, I will host Billy Joe Harris, Tyrone Williams, Alden Nielsen, and Erica Hunt in a discussion of Erica Hunt's poem, Should You Find Me? This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs> <laughs>